You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? West Dead Air and I here with always Typical Lydia. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the 1979 horror classic, The Driller Killer. Dun, dun, dun. But before we start, there are a couple of... There's housekeeping stuff to talk about. One, you, our loyal listeners, might have noticed that we have switched from a bi-weekly schedule to a weekly schedule. If they noticed. If they noticed, which I'm sure they did. Uh, This would be the third episode in just as many weeks. Uh, We hope to continue with this. We are, uh, I don't know, I guess it was something that we always wanted to do. Always wanted to do a weekly edition of the show. I always kind of felt two weeks is kind of a long wait. You know, we'll try it. We'll do it for as long as we possibly can. I mean, we might miss weeks here and there, but the goal is to do it weekly. It is, and it was our goal at the get-go. It really, really was. And who knows if we can record two episodes in one shot or two episodes at least in one week mm-hmm. there may not be gaps that are noticeable if we can't make a scheduled recording date but who knows you know we might end up with some gaps but at least we'll be gearing up toward halloween with some weekly shows we are and that reminds us the other thing that we've been doing or we're going to be doing is uh we're gonna be letting you know what movies we're going to be doing what what why well because uh some of our loyal listeners have expressed that sometimes it's difficult to listen to the show because they haven't seen the movie that we're talking about and we talk up and down these movies we sometimes are very detail oriented so there's a lot of spoilers and it kind of can seem like a conversation that they're not part of so now We will be assigning you homework. Every time that I tell you what movie we're doing next, you have a week to watch it. Get it ready. Fired it up. So today, obviously, we're doing The Driller Killer. Next up, we got Stage Fright. It's a musical. Yeah. A horror musical. We'll see. I have never seen it, so it'll be exciting. We've gone from someone wishing New York to be filthy and charmed to a filthy New York in The Driller Killer with a lot of music leading into the musical that is Stage Fright. And it is a nice surprise for you, because I've seen it a couple times. And I was sort of, like, back and forth about bringing it to the show, because it's not, like, 100% splatter horror. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't always have to be. And it relies a lot on a lot of our very dear and cherished horror tropes. Yeah, I did ask you basic questions, because you said there was a point you didn't want to do it. And, and I said, okay, is there a killer? Is there a body count? Is there, uh, are these kills performed on screen? Little stuff like that. And you're like, yes. I'm like, well, then it's a slasher, musical or not. And that counts. So, because I'll be the first one to, to poo-poo uh, a film. We've done it before. Yeah. Where I'm like, this isn't horror. We can't do this. Yeah. Um, I'll go thrillers. That's cool. We can do some thrillers. Um, but... Um, no, it has to be at least in the camp of horror. Yeah, and leading into Halloween, we'll be hitting some uh, pretty cool horror anyway. So I feel like even if it doesn't bring everything to the table that I want it to bring to the table as far as a horror yeah. pick, we'll be getting there. But as I said, we are going to be doing The Driller Killer today, 1979. Abel Ferreira at it again. Actually, <laughs> again. Well, for the, for first, the first time. For the first time. This movie 
has a unique distinction of being written, directed, and the lead role belonging to Abel Ferreira. Also shot primarily in his own apartment and neighborhood. This movie is indie as fuck. It really is, and you see a lot of people doing this, and it's usually a bad thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can definitely attest to several movies that I've seen in my life that are just as indie as it fucking comes, and holy shit, they're unwatchable. When you're watching the credits, and it's like, written by this guy, directed by same guy, you know. Yeah, three strikes, you're out. Written, directed, starring, starring and it sucks. Yeah, and Oof. you're just like, oh, fuck, no. It's pretty rare that it works out. And I'm not going to say that this is some sort of holy grail trifecta where he has filled all these roles and it's flawless. It's not. It's yes, not at all. When you sure. say India is fuck, it truly is. Oh, yeah. It has some of the pitfalls that indie movies will have. In particular, for me, lighting. Now, to be fair, Ugh. this whole thing is shot in 16 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, it, even if you were doing an independent movie and you're doing everything by yourself, you still needed film reel. Uh, 16 millimeter was a little less expensive than uh, 32. So that's primarily what people doing really indie as fuck movies would do. Nowadays, it's all digital. You record on your fucking phone. Yeah. And you're good. So, I mean, the, the nice thing about films nowadays is you can do a lot more with a lot less without really spending more than a couple hundred dollars. And then there you go. It's all digital. It's all nothing. But light is still just important. You couldn't film on oh. any any device in this room that we're sitting in right oh, now. Oh, hell no. Hell no. It's way, way, way too dark. You wouldn't be able to pick up a thing regardless of what medium you were filming on. Um, that said, sure, they might have blown all their money on the film stopped because they certainly didn't spend anything on location. They didn't spend anything on licensing at all. They didn't have any music that wasn't prepared for the show. I don't think uh, by the band that was featured in the show, Tony Coca-Cola and the roosters, Tony Coca-Cola and the roosters. (laughs) Fuck. I hate those guys. What? They're great. We'll rant about that later. Yeah, sure. I guess. But they could have invested in at least a few more light bulbs. There's some candlelit scenes that are actually filmed better than most things. The scenes where he's painting in the dark, you really get the sense. Uh, well, we should back up a little bit, and, and we'll talk a bit about... Uh, the basic plot. Yeah, the basic plot. That's <laughs> usually how we do things. So, Abel Ferreira, uh, who took a screen credit as Jimmy Lane in this film, he plays Reno. And Reno is uh, an artist who lives in a shitty apartment with two women... Carol and Pamela. Now, Carol is his girlfriend, and Pamela is Carol's girlfriend. It doesn't she? Like, Pamela doesn't really seem to have much interaction with Reno. They're pals. They're but, pals, yeah. but I mean, it's definitely not intimate. No, it doesn't seem to be intimate. I mean, he helps her out here and there. Uh, the the drill gets introduced by helping Pamela. I drill something on the door. I'm not really sure what it is. I don't remember if she hangs something there or not, but yeah, she does have him drill something. And it's a very dom- domestic th- situation where she's like ordering him around where to drill and correcting herself and being like, no, no, not there here. No, no, wait, not there here. So you can tell they get along domestically anyway because he's being very patient with her. Mm. Now, Carol 
is the one with the money. Not a lot of money, but she's the one with the money. She is recently divorced from her husband, Stefan, and Reno has no financial... Reno. Reno. Reno has no financial means whatsoever. He's working on a painting with just this big fucking buffalo on it, and that seems to be his latest and greatest masterpiece. He keeps going to, which I guess would it be an agent? It's his agent or just an art dealer that's very interested in him, and he must have made this guy some sort of money previously. Right, but this is a little bit of a drought in his artistic career. He doesn't really have any money, and Reno is extremely agitated right from the get-go because of bills, money problems, things that people get stressed out about all the time. But I mean, he's having meltdowns over the phone bill, over the rent that they have to pay. Almost the scene, the scene is great because he's screaming at his girlfriend for making long distance calls. And the price of rent Almost as if he's never encountered (laughs) any of this before. I mean, you get a sense that maybe he might have never had to pay a bill in his entire life because he's flipping out. The line is like, what what, what are we paying all this money for? A refrigerator? A couple lights? I don't understand. Like, he doesn't understand why it's so expensive. People are placing long-distance calls and in a very nonchalant way, just claiming the right to the call. So when he's like, who the hell called this place? And she's like, I did. Or who the hell called that place? I called my sister. And they're just saying it like it's a matter of fact because they probably place these calls all the time and probably paid the bill all the time. He is definitely acting like he's never seen a bill in his life. It's pretty funny. And then... He grabs the phone and throws it out the window, almost as if he's like Elvis Presley, like shooting the television. But instead, he literally just throws the phone out the window. It's the first death in the movie. Yeah. Is that poor baby blue phone and the window, I guess, a double kill. It's a double kill. (laughs) I don't know. I don't count that as a kill. Sorry. But yeah. The phone worked and then it didn't. And the window worked and now it doesn't. It can't even window anymore. A window's primary job is to keep... The outside, outside. I can't do that anymore because of the big gaping hole in it. Dead. I saw something on the Wikipedia about a line that was in the trailer that's cut from the film. It says something like it's just a window. And now I wonder if that's what they're alluding to. Maybe someone got sad about the window later on in the film. And he was like, it's just a window, man. Like if you have <laughs> like 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 a, a, a book or something or a stuffed animal that you had when you were a little kid. And then it gets thrown in the garbage and you get like super upset about it. And you feel bad for it. It's like, it's like it has feelings. Maybe this film isn't about the drilling and the killing at all. Maybe this is really all about the window. We should go right back to the beginning in the church, which makes no sense because it is, like you said, a very schizophrenically filmed It's very film. schizophrenic. So maybe there's some window scenes I missed that I should go back <laughs> and pay closer fucking attention to. I could tell you what you would be missing in this film. One of the, 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 the key plot points that is easily forgettable that you were saying mm-hmm. was the fact that he believed this homeless person at the very beginning of the movie in a church was his father. And the homeless person had his phone number and name and had arranged a meeting with him. And he went in and the man mumbled something and he got pissed. And that was his first freak out. Mm-hmm. And then he freaks out over the bills. Uh, later on, I, I somebody he's coming up on somebody with the drill and the person says, you're like a son to me. And I think that's supposed to be way more important 
than it is because you've forgotten all this father stuff mm-hmm. that was only vaguely alluded to. Yeah. yeah. It's very typical anytime when... I'm not going to say it's lazy writing, but anytime that you're going to have a male character have some kind of issue, I'll, like, I just find that all the time it's like, like a dad thing. It's a dad thing a lot. I don't yeah. know. Maybe yeah. that's just my perspective as a, as a as a man that didn't really have problems with my dad. So I, I maybe I just don't find it relatable. But like it's weird to me how oh like is all this killing because what his dad is like a homeless person? I I don't know. I've I've had a lot of male friends that have had um you know difficulties with their father or not having a father around at all or having a a surrogate or a stepfather or something that uh, either doesn't cut the mustard or tries very, very hard and doesn't quite make the cut. Um, but it doesn't define them as a person. And yeah. they have issues later on in life of any sort. It's usually nothing to do with their fucking dad. And I'm sure there's psychoanalysts out there that could try and bring it all back to that in a really Freudian sense. But it really, like nine times out of ten, has nothing to do with their character. Mm-hmm. Although, in this, it seems to have, from my point of view, nothing to do with the character of Reno, but it is brought up here and there. Mm-hmm. So you can tell that it's, yeah, it's, it's something that's trying to be written in, but doesn't quite work. Well, at the very least, it's not communicated very well because you forget about it almost yeah. instantly. Yeah. Because there's all of this other fucking shit being shoved in your face. Like Tony Coca-Cola and the Roosters. Tony Coca-Cola and the Roosters. And... His lesbian girlfriend couple that yeah. he lives with? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of interesting, very distracting. It's very distracting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of scenes with, with well, a lot of scenes. There's there's a few scenes with some naked ladies in it, and sometimes the ladies are doing stuff to each other. Uh, I guess that was Abel Ferreira's bag. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because I, I read that as his career continued, and this guy did have a, a career after this, started doing bigger and bigger movies. Apparently, this was a theme like New York lesbianism. Like these were apparently like recurring themes in his films. I sort guess. of like this weird middle society in between the upper and lower echelon in society. That's apparent. This sort of like middle, middle, middle class, hidden middle class that can really get away with whatever and float in between the two, which is sort of where he stays in the course of his filmmaking that I've seen, and a lot of this like. Uh, clashing between classes in the streets of New York and stuff like that, which is really cool. Uh, two of my favorites, Bad Lieutenant and uh, King of New York. If you watch like this, Miss 45, King of New York, Black, Bad Lieutenant, you can really see his filmmaking, you know, increase by leaps and bounds with every single film, just in that sort of like first third of his career. Mm-hmm. Because this isn't a bad film. No, 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 no whatsoever. I don't think it's a bad movie. I think that it's very experimental. Yeah. I think he went into this with a few base ideas and his love of punk music and wanting to display graphic kills just became really central. The, the, the biggest takeaway you'll get from this movie is, wow, that was a lot of musical scenes and, oh, these are very graphic kills. Yeah. So any sort of narrative that he wanted to accomplish under that, I think, just got bogged down in more bombastic aspects of the story. But, again, he's learning. A lot of things was learning, right? I mean, if you're just, like, filming a lot of this yourself and you've written it yourself and you're uh, doing 
a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the acting because you're almost in every scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and having to act your fucking face off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could see it was the start of somebody who's probably going to continue making films. I mean, I've definitely seen movies where people are coming out the gate and it's just a mess. It's bad on every front. I feel like this is a movie that if you were to look at it and and honestly, if you were to look at it and say, hmm, if this just had a little bit more money or if they had hired certain people with a little bit more acting experience, if he had a little bit more experience maybe editing it. I don't know if he was responsible for the editing, but the editing in some parts was really weird. Uh, it, like the scenes just jumped all over the place. Well, the beginning was a little bit worse. I found by the end, you know, the middle toward the end, the acting gets a little bit better. The lighting's still not so good. The sound is is a little more cohesive, and the storyline itself is a lot more linear. But the beginning, even you had said within the first maybe fifteen minutes, you're like, "This is so schizophrenic." If you look away, you'll totally not even know what the fuck is going on. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, if you avert your eyes for a fucking second. Yeah. Like you look down to uh, fucking scratch your leg and you look up and you're, and you're like, oh, what the hell's happening? Because in the first couple, five, less than five minutes, you're in a church, you're in a cab, you're in a nightclub. Then you're, then he's screaming at them about the bills moments yeah. later. Yeah. So, and there's tons of examples where the passage of time is not clear. Mm-hmm. I don't know when certain events are happening. Not like oh, is this happening a day from now or two minutes from now? But you're like, well, what is he doing here? How did he get over here? Where is he? Where's other characters? <laughs> yeah. And who are these people? Because who... no one's really been clearly fucking identified yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Throw a few artsy shots in there for no reason, close-ups of eyes and stuff. What the fuck? Who knows what's going on? In a lot of ways, Reno and his lady friends are a good example of that sort of weird generation in the late 70s or early 80s, coming out of New York, people involved in the art and the punk scene of the day. I mean, one of the things that I guess I could understand about Reno's character having that coiled spring was the fact that he is a very artistic person. And if you know certain things about famous artists of that era, or even kind of spanning back the last 20, 30 years, some of them had like notorious personalities you know, like Jackson Pollock comes to mind or Picasso comes to mind. Uh, Men with like just very weird and out there and artsy fartsy and like parades of women around them. And although impossible to have an actual relationship with. Yeah, exactly. Fits of violence. Oh, absolutely. So, so in that sense, it seemed, yeah, yeah. Obviously he's dramatically throwing a telephone out of a window because he doesn't want to pay the phone bills even though he doesn't pay them anyways. That's the other thing. Carol, jeez, <laughs> gets an award for patience. And it doesn't make any sense to me because this is a woman who is in a divorce, a divorced woman who gets with this artsy guy. And you get a sense from what you know about her original husband that she was probably used to things a little bit more stable, but for whatever reason, they didn't. it didn't work out. And probably got lured in by the idea of like this romantic, eccentric artist living in New York and just going to go slum it with the nightclubs and the punk scene and the artiness. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps, perhaps Carol got married very young and, and is trying to 
recapture. I mean, she's still very young and beautiful, but at the same time, I don't know. Like, there's not a whole hell of a lot you know about her character previous to her life, except for the fact that she has some alimony money from her ex-husband, and she foots a lot of the bills for Reno, and he is expecting a pretty big payday for his latest masterpiece. But even that is only about $500. Honestly, this the whole thing about him going to Dalton, who's his art dealer, and, and saying this is going to be my, my greatest piece of work, it's for 500 bucks, And even in 1979, I mean, that's his rent. It's one month's rent. Yeah. So... It's not even like, oh, if I if if I sell this one painting, we're set for life. Yeah, it's not gonna... like thousands and thousands of dollars. No, it's no. Rent for one month. Rent for one month. So it didn't really seem like there was a lot of stakes to me. Like, it didn't really seem like, okay, so he'll sell that painting. He'll use that money for the rent, but that's his painting. And up until Tony Coca-Cola gets him to commission a painting for him for another $500. I mean, like, yeah, he, he'll he do commissions and, and he'll do his art projects. But again, he has no income otherwise. But it also doesn't really seem like that big of a deal to me because of the fact that Carol is basically just paying all the bills. She doesn't have a lot of money and, and they're behind on their rent, but at the same time, their landlord really likes them and and seems to be giving them a bit of a break. And making jokes about, well, if you pay it now, you're just going to be two months behind tomorrow. Yeah. Like, thinking it's kind of funny, giving them dead rabbits. Giving them dead rabbits to, to eat. He's like, yeah. here, you and your girlfriend can, can make this and... It's weird that she's going to stick around, though, knowing that his big masterpiece that he's working on, that she's helping him focus on, and she's trying to support him, like, monetarily and emotionally, is just going to cover one more month of rent. I know. Is she just going to take off the next month? Is that... I know. It doesn't really make any sense to me, especially because she's very patient and a very even-tempered woman, Mm -hmm. and she's constantly getting screamed at. Pretty much. It's ridiculous to me about... I mean, for God's sake, she suggests in one scene, maybe the painting's done. Maybe it's finished. I mean, and like, I'm not an art artist, but I mean, it looked done to me too. And, <laughs> yeah. and he berates her for like five minutes. He chews her right out. Yeah. Uh, like, all you know how to do is bitch and... Eat like, and bitch. And shit and bitch. Like, holy... <laughs> I was like, wow. And, and you know what? She doesn't... Almost no reaction. She just like listens to him yeah. and then the next scene later that's it that, that, well he had his outburst i get like well maybe it, she relaxes with pamela maybe because don't forget all this time she's housing and feeding pamela as well she might be, be like having a goldfish and i love her <laughs> stupidity pamela, but uh, pamela she's there too is 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 almost the the personification of chilling out just being relaxed That's all she does she like i said she's the most the lowest impact girlfriend i think i could ever imagine having like having a goldfish because she she doesn't really make a lot of noise she doesn't make a lot of fuss she never really seems to get stressed out about anything she just sort of sits around and like wears weird sunglasses and and dances to punk music and goes out when everyone's going out but i mean she basically just sits and watches tv and she does her hair and she makes out with whoever's closest yeah yeah basically yeah very uh she's kind of like a groupie girl but she genuinely seems to like carol and doesn't seem to mind her living situation like a puppy like a puppy Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, she's adorable. She doesn't really seem to have a lot going on upstairs. I mean, her trying to pronounce alimony. Alum, sorry, pronounce... Alum. Honestly, in that scene, she kind of reminded me of like, did they just like grab this 
girl like out of the woods like raised <laughs> by wolves and 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 brought her into their apartment and are now trying to teach her the English language because it's not even it's, she never heard the word alimony pretty much yeah and, she's and got like a grade say 3 it. education couldn't even say it like alamo alamo alimony alimony <laughs> even then she's like alimony <laughs> like she is just learning it for the first time i've met people that dumb in real life and they're endlessly frustrating and i cannot handle people those single helix goons i just can't handle stupid people but she transcends stupid she's gone beyond that uncanny valley of stupidity that i think exists right up the other side to just goldfish and it's cute that's what I was gonna say. She's very cute and very sweet, and and you would you couldn't imagine her like, name. Her name. Her credited name is Baby Day. Baby Day. Baby Day. <laughs> what a name! B a y b i or something is how you spell baby in her world. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, one thing at a time. First alimony, then we work on how to spell your name. <laughs> I love her. I oh. wish she's never she's not credited with any other films that I've seen, and I yeah. I, I wish that she had been. Cause... She might have just been a friend. Yeah. Of a friend of his that apparently she was a dancer or something. Oh, a dancer, yeah, I don't read that's that cool. Closely, I mean, I like her. Yeah, I like her too, and it, I mean, it almost seems like a person like that. You can't even. I couldn't even imagine raising your voice, like even getting mad at them. In the same way you wouldn't get mad at a goldfish. Or a puppy. Or a puppy. It's like you can't really get mad at them. And they're so sweet and they're not hurting anything. So leave them alone. Like, don't ask them hard questions. <laughs> or to spell things. Don't ask them the hard questions on how to spell things and it's fine. Yeah. I'm glad that she persists through the story as a character too. She's not just a throwaway fixture. She's not just a novelty. She is a, a strong character for all of her vacancy. She is. Yeah. Reno's got a lot of problems. Oh my God, yes. He's stressing out secretly about his father somehow we suppose we guess yeah um only because it was mentioned and why mention it if it's not something massive right yeah um and mentioned right off the hop at the beginning in the church so it's super important to some for some reason um and he's freaking out about the bills he's freaking about his out about his art now he's freaking out about tony coca-cola and the roosters so we're introduced to tony coca-cola and the roosters who provide the music for this movie now that uh this movie is just got punk music all over it, uh, provided to us by Tony Coca-Cola and the Roosters. You know who they are because, well, they'll tell you, because it's, like, crudely painted. They got a Roosters mobile. Yeah. Like, the first time you see them, and they just sort of pile out. It's like old Bel Air or some shit. They pile out of their car, and and uh, they get a nearby apartment to Reno and his two ladies. And... They just start practicing their music at all hours, two o'clock in the morning, whatever. The song that they're covering, basically, even though it's not a cover of the song, they change the lyrics entirely, but it's basically um, Jack the Ripper by Screaming Lord Such. It was written by someone else in the 50s, and it was covered again by Nick Cave. It was popular by Screaming Lord Such about two years before this film was Massive, massive punk song. Yeah. So, and the horrors have covered it since, which is my favorite version of it. It's been covered, like... Probably hundreds of times, mm, but at it's least a very recognizable riff in that super recognizable baseline. That yeah. the song that they are playing over and over and over to the point that it drives me nuts. It begins to drive Reno nuts, and I don't know why it doesn't drive all of New York nuts. Mm-hmm. The baseline for Jack the Ripper, and that's exactly what song they're playing. Although they don't cover it or sing it, no, they don't. But the, but the, it's it's unmistakable. And I'll tell you, dear listeners. When Lydia's frustrated about someone playing a song, she'll 
turn her phone on and start playing the actual song. <laughs> Just so I know there's no mistake that just to let you know. I think yeah. I played you four different versions. You did. You're like, listen to this version. Listen to this version. I was like, we're trying to watch a fucking movie here. I'm glad we didn't watch this in a theater with other people. Oh, I wouldn't have done that in a theater. I would have left the room. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So they start playing this song. And it is it is interesting that like the landlord... Because Rio tries to go to appeal to the landlord about, you know, what the fuck, man? And like, these guys... Even when the roosters he, moved in, the landlord said, no, you're going to be quiet, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it got to the point, like, when he when he was confronted by it, by Reno, he, he just said, it doesn't bother me. I like it. It's fine. It's like, yeah. you know, whatever. Reno's point, of course, being that, that as an artist, two o'clock in the morning, he's trying to work. And it's driving him crazy. It's driving him crazy. Now, is this really the tipping point? Is that what it's communicated? Because I feel like he was on the verge of murder before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because he's been ranting about all kinds of stuff. Even throwing the phone out the window was, could have been the That's not point. normal behavior. No, it's not at all. So this could be a scapegoat where he's like, I was already nuts, but I'm going to I'm gonna say I'm nuts now because I have something to blame it on. And also, the people that he's killing is not Tony Coca-Cola and the Roosters. I wish it was Tony Coca-Cola and the Roosters. No, hang on a second here. I like Tony Coca-Cola no, and the Roosters. I'm not a fan. not a fan. Right. I'm not a big fan of that whole New York punk sound i'm just not i'm not a fan of the lyrics that are totally intelligible and i'm not a fan of them annoying the poor artist man who's trying to do his art to make his rent you know what i mean it would be it would be really cool if he was killing them off one by one because there was enough of them to kill there's probably like like nine people in that apartment at any given time yeah it was I actually mean, crazy yeah not just the music and jamming because i know that can be pretty pretty loud having like a jam space like within an apartment building but just the amount of people in and out must have been super noisy to other tenants too but whatever. yeah the band mem- the band themselves seem to have about like four or five members to it and then they eat you know they have like their groupie girls with them and backup singers and see so, yeah it was very busy but they're subsisting sort of in this middle social class right where they're not uh vagrants and bums true and they're not you know the higher echelon like the the dealer the landlord what's her face's ex-husband and stuff like that people who are removed entirely from the street life they're sort of like floating in the middle so they can sort of get away with whatever they want so of course he's not going <clears> to <throat> attack his equals Right? Tony Coca-Cola and the Roosters. I suppose not. He goes and starts killing homeless people. And let me tell you, there are tons of them. This movie really goes out of its way to constantly show a lot of homeless people. And I'm always... Some of the vagrants were credited. Yeah, and while we were watching it, we are sort of like, I wonder if he didn't just... You know, sit, sit his camera down across the road. I wonder if that guy that was puking on himself knew he was being filmed. Which yeah, even knew knew that he was ever in a movie. Yeah, it, it's it's it really did seem authentic, candid entirely. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and again, when you're talking about a movie set in New York around this time period, I mean, New York was in pretty rough shape. Oh, even now. I'm sure you could just go and pop a camera down somewhere and catch some drunk bum puking on himself. You could do that here. You would do that across the road, actually. About 10 o'clock in the morning, across the road from my house, that happens. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, there, there's that, but at the same time, that this was sort of in vogue to, just to, to show New York in this light. Yeah, street photography, street art. Mm-hmm. Even the part where the he's on the roof and he's sort of he's frustrated now by this point he's frustrated by the band he's frustrated by his art he's frustrated by the bills he's frustrated by everything his father his father we can't forget
forget his father. Even though it's very easy to do. Very, very easy. Uh, so he's up on the roof kind of just watching some of these street scenes unfold and a guy gets stabbed right in front of his house. Yeah. And that almost seems like another candid shot. Where yeah. some guy walks and some other guy comes up and stabs him. Well, he doesn't even steal anything. Like yeah. that guy literally just gets knifed in the back. Yeah. Goodbye. Left for dead. Everyone sort of mills around. Yeah. Semi shock. Semi shock. Like, ooh, what's going on here? Yeah. You know there. Uh, and, and anyways, so he takes the drill, hence the title of the movie. The drill that he's was introduced earlier into the movie. The drill he can ill afford. That he can't afford because he's got a, a power pack. But it's 1995? No, it was 1995. 1995. For this. That's what we figured $80,000 in today's terms? In 1979, yeah. $80,000. About $80 to $100, I'd say, would be fair. Yeah. He somehow gets his hands on it, and now he is using that to drill homeless people. He, <laughs> he has scenes, a scene with a homeless person who he doesn't kill, and he wants him to wake up, and he, and he wants him to, ex- what happened to you? What happened to you? Did you get Did you get fired? Did you Did you Did your uh, Did your wife kick you out? Was your wife sleeping with somebody else, and then you got kicked out? Is that what happened? He wants to know, and one of his fears is becoming homeless himself. And since he secretly believes that that homeless person at the beginning of the movie is his father and is a homeless person, and he is on the verge of getting kicked out of his apartment if this art doesn't sell then he the next step for him is a homeless person like all of the other people that he's looking at now this is rattling him to his core yes and so he decides to start brutally murdering the homeless people in his neighborhood i guess to somehow say i'm not going to be part of you i'm not going to be one of you and in fact now i'm going to kill you all that, and it's another tension release, because he can't take out his frustrations on the things that are actually aggravating him. His art isn't going to listen no matter how hard he screams at it. His mm-hmm. girlfriend doesn't really listen. And he needs his girlfriend. Like, he can't... Yeah. He, he can scream at her, and, and, and you know, at the, the beginning, you don't get a sense that he's seeing any remorse. But when she really loses her temper at him, finally, uh, you know, he paints her like an I'm sorry, because, I mean... Whether or not he really loves her or really needs her financially or whatever, he knows that he can't really do this without her. Yeah. And so he would be devastated. If so he can't she... really, really take anything out on her. He can't not take anything really. out on her ex. He can't take anything really out on Tony Coca-Cola and the Roosters, especially now that his girlfriend's girlfriend is hanging out with them yeah so he's got to take his aggression out somewhere he can't really take his aggression out on his dealer really yet because he's like hasn't turned in the art that's his meal ticket yeah his future meal ticket future meal so might as well turn on the vagrants and garbage around him right that he hates so fucking much even though it's not made entirely clear like we're we're lucky we're paying like such close attention i've seen this probably six times I'm this gl- is the second time I've seen it. Yeah, I'm glad that you own it in that way. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got this at uh, at a gas station for a couple bucks, which is super cool. I, and I guess it's probably part of the whole public domain dispute problem thing. Mm-hmm. It's probably he probably didn't see a dime of that couple bucks, but no. whatever. <laughs> he has other films that were released properly, so yeah. I mean, it was actually a friend of mine got that movie for me he he sent me a text message he's like i'm at this gas station and they have the driller killer do you want it i was like yeah i do 
I would want it. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Like, it might not be a flawless film, but I enjoy it very much. And it seems like on repeated viewings, you get more and more out of it. Yeah. yeah. I definitely would, would think that. I mean, we are trying to really think about what this character's motivation is because it's really hard to determine and you need multiple viewings of this movie i think i think that if you were to watch this movie it would in a group it would be a bad idea if you actually wanted to know what the fuck was going on because Mm -hmm. if you had three or four people in a room and people are sort of talking and you're getting distracted you're looking at your phone for a second impossible you're never going to get this in one go you, you, this movie demands your full attention. Almost like a theater setting would be best, too, because it is a little bit mumbly. The sound isn't 100%. That's not great, no. Yeah, and the light is shit, so it'd be nicer to watch it in a fully darkened arena because you need to pay, like you said, 100% attention to this to really get what's going on. Look, man, I like, you know, a 16 millimeter plus the fact that there was no real lighting to speak of. I mean, some of these scenes are super dark yeah. and really hard to see. And especially in times when there's a great deal of motion, it's very difficult. All these things are things that will turn most people off of a film. Absolutely. A lot of these things will have someone stop a film halfway through. Mm-hmm. Luckily, it's a compelling enough thing. And he's pulled this feat being this, like, you know, uh, having this, wearing these three hats of writing and directing and acting in it that it's amazing that he actually pulled that off that he does have a compelling performance he has a compelling script he has a compelling setting and other actors the supporting actors are all interesting enough even the annoying fucking band i can't stand being shown over and over with their their but they don't seem it seems authentic it seems like people that are just really into the punk scene in New York from the late 70s and early 80s and that carried on into like the mid mid yeah. 80s before which it's would through. have been super interesting at the time mm-hmm. i'm sure to somebody not me but yeah but, yeah but i think it's interesting because i like to see i mean yeah they're definitely playing like somewhat caricatures i think but somewhat yeah somewhat cuz even the more most annoying punk friends of mine <laughs> That are like enchantingly annoying. Even mm. the most annoying of them, turned up to eleven, aren't as annoying as these people. But they definitely are a a band that is very much about loving to perform. They have a bit of success. I mean, they're definitely they're playing consistent gigs. They're uh, uh, Tony Coca Cola. I'd has... rather watch Sid and Nancy if I wanted to see a movie about New York punk scene, though. Yeah, and, and yeah. like I'm I'm definitely not yeah. saying that. Oh yeah, watch this. I think that this is another addition to that. Like I don't think that this is. The quintessential uh, punk movie that's that you know what I'm saying? Like, oh yeah, not no, that, totally. But, but I'm just and saying, they are caricatures of that scene. Yeah, I, I think that it's very specific because it almost like in some scenes, honestly, it makes me think about all the extras from Rocky Horror, just like formed like a different band. <laughs> you know, like all the extras, like the party, the party goers. Yeah, with like yeah. the sunglasses, especially that You're scene. You're totally right. Especially like the scene where they're getting ready to go on to the show, and it's just he, like Tony Coca-Cola's wearing like the the neon sunglasses. He's going like, yeah. and just he making these. Totally is. Like it, it, he honestly just seems like an extra from Rocky Horror to me. The unconventional conventionist. Yes. Yeah. No, totally. That's totally right. And you know what's funny is even there's a couple scenes that I meant to mention where uh, Reno is wielding the drill a lot like Dr. Well, well Frankenfurter is. He's a doctor. He's, he's a doctor? Yeah, is he doctor. really a doctor? He's definitely Dr. Frankenfurter. Doctor. Mm. 
No wonder he's got the glove thing down, Patty. <laughs> does that so right. Oh my God, Tim Curry, <laughs> sir. Um, when he's wielding the electric knife at dinner. Yeah. And he's shushing people with it. He definitely, because Reno shushes people Twice. with his drill. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to mention it because I know how much you love Dr. Frankenfurter. I love the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. Oh my God, I love that so We much. haven't derailed a show publicly with Dr. Rocky Horror Picture Show, but you know, almost every other show, when we're warming up, we derail our show with Rocky Horror Picture Show stuff. I don't know why, <laughs> but we just do. Because I have that knowledge. This is the first time. Oh, I love that we do this live and together and I get the visuals. Um, this is the first time that we've gone public. We've gone public with my love of Rocky Horror? Yes. Well, I'll get into that on a later episode when we go to uh, the Mayfair Theater. Yeah, Stead Air goes to the movies. We're going to the movies for Nosferatu. Because the good old Mayfair Theater, a, a second-run theater in the city of Ottawa where we record, is going to be doing the 1922 silent Nosferatu. I have a lot of history with that theater. I used to do the... Uh, I used to technically be security there, but I, I did uh, the intro for the Rocky Horror Picture Show every Halloween for that theater. And so I would get everyone hyped. I'd be, I was a hype man. I like would get everyone pumped for the crowd and tell them all the rules. And you bring your toast, you bring your all the Because as people know, especially anybody listening to a horror podcast would know, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is like a phenomenon. It's a you, par- you participate with it. It is a phenomenon. It is, it is a fucking party. Not unlike Tony and the Roosters is a fucking party. They really, really are like unconventional conventions. Yeah. I personally just like to further derail here. Um, I've gone to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show once mm-hmm. uh, live at the Mayfair participation. Yes. I can't. I don't. I humans. No. No. I need to sit way up at the back in the in the top, and I could probably watch that go on. But I'll never sit anywhere near anyone ever again. When, when I first did it, I had seen maybe two minutes of the Rocky Horror Picture Show before I saw it with an audience. Okay. One Halloween, I think it was on Much Music, and I saw a couple of minutes from Touch a Touch a Touch Me. Okay. And Cute. and and I was like, what is this? And I changed the station. Okay. And and then when they said the oh, you want to do security for this? Uh, the guy that used to run the, the thing, Dave, had never done it before, and he was a little nervous about how many people were going to be there and how rowdy he could get. And and I think at the time, another theater, uh, it got a little out of control and their screen got ripped. Oh. So he was kind of nervous about something like this. And so I, well, I was teaching martial arts at the time, and I have a second-degree black belt. And so he's like, well, you want to go there and just kind of manage the crowd? And I was like, I don't know. I'm going to like crack teenagers' heads or something. I don't know. But I agreed to do it because, uh, yeah, it sounded fun to me. But I'd never seen the movie before. And in one night, I watched that movie with a crowd four times. Nice introduction. And then the very next day, I did it again. Another four times. I couldn't handle once. Once just... And And then I did it every single year that Dave ran that. So to the point now that Ottawa is a very close-knit community, I still get recognized as the person that did that sometimes. 
That's mental. Isn't it? I've watched it hundreds of times beforehand, always, you know, with maybe me or my parents, mostly just me or like one or two friends, maybe mm-hmm. like lots of different times. And only not, it was like maybe three years ago that I watched it with a crowd and I was, I did not like it. I don't like crowds. What was I expecting? I, and I wasn't like really right in the stink, right? But I was, I still didn't fucking enjoy it. But that's me, right? No, no, yeah. And yeah. I mean, like for anyone who has any sort of social anxiety or is just uncomfortable with rowdy situations, watch it at home. Actually, I have since, uh, my association with the Mayfair has become I've, I'm now just like I'm. I'm a patron, just yeah. like anybody else. Yeah. I, I I buy my ticket and I show up. It's very. It's different now. My closeness with the with the original owners because my father did the was the accountant uh, was an accountant and he did all the, the he handled the money at the Mayfair. So that's how come I kind of got special treatment. Yeah. Uh, while I was there and spent so much time there and spent so much time there. So the first time I watched the Rocky Horror Picture Show with the crowd, I was like you. I was like, I can't believe this. I cannot understand what these people are doing. Why are they shouting at the screen? Why? I this this was for I didn't. It was described. It's weird to that me. you'd never seen the film before either. I, I was. It was described to me, yeah. and and I just watched it and I was like, this is awful. Then I watched it again. Then I watched it again <laughs> and again. I, I I found myself year after year looking forward to it, and so I was like, "Well, I don't like this. Like this movie's weird. I don't understand the plot, but uh, I like Meatloaf's part. I like that song, like Hot Patootie. Give me some of that. I like that." And then it was like, "Well, I like Hot Patootie, and I like this song." It's sort of like the way I look forward to a dentist appointment. Yeah, don't stop now, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Shop of horrors. Anyway, yes. um, and then and then it was just all of a sudden I was like, oh no, 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 I fucking love this movie. It was like this weird, slowly over time <laughs> we're tipping point. Like like, I, where, like I, mean, I was just conditioned to like, and now I love it. I love that movie and Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm much? syndrome. It's like oh, this movie's great, handsome. <laughs> like I've shown it to people since by like and when it's not with the crowd it doesn't I, like I love it and I'm just I'm like I need the crowd now it's it's crazy like I think Rocky Horror Picture Show needs to be watched with a crowd and it needs to be watched with a fucking rowdy crowd that and it knows needs, it that, that knows well, that, that knows how when to yell the at the cues, screen yeah. because let me tell you something you'll like the movie more and that, like, for you, for, I like. I did not like that experience. I still like the movie, and I've probably maybe only watched it once or twice since then. Cause maybe I was a little scarred. You know? <laughs> but apparently, Ottawa was the first place that they did show it live like that. Really? Yeah, that's apparently, fascinating. There was uh, like another one or two other screens that were going to that was going to premiere at, um, but they wouldn't they wouldn't let it because of content, and they screened it here for the first time somewhere downtown. Uh, at a theater that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, all that to say is, unlike the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and as much as uh, Tony Coca-Cola is just like the extras in... And all that shushing people with the drill. <laughs> shushing, Like yeah, an electric it, knife it, at dinner. Yeah. As much as all that is, is present, uh, you cannot watch The Driller Killer with a, a crowd that is... Because you, you're not going to fucking... You can still throw toast at the screen, I'm sure. Well, we could point. try it, but I mean, like, Jesus Christ, it's hard to fucking follow. Oh, yeah. And so as the roosters 
continue playing and as Reno gets closer to completing his painting, which is of a big buffalo. The not, stupidest painting ever. Not, well, it's not the stupidest. It's well done, but I don't understand why anyone would want it in their home. Well, like, you want a giant painting of a buffalo. I don't get it. But maybe I'm not supposed to. And as this is all happening, Tony Coca-Cola comes to the apartment wanting to give Pamela a, a gift and sees Reno's art and says, can you... I want you to do a portrait of me. You make it sound so normal. It sounds like this nice gentlemanly fella that lives next door strolls in and is like, hello, I'm here to give Pamela something. You are an artist. I'd like you to paint my portrait. It does not go like that at all. It's like a 15-minute rambling stoner scene. And it's, it's even hard to follow. I even get got confused on my like fifth or sixth viewing here. Yeah. Um, well, he wants them to make him something special. Yeah. Do that thing. Special. That thing. You know, I couldn't you it. do that with me? Yeah. This? You... Where Reno even is translating, like, do you want me to paint your portrait? Because because he says, like, how do you... He looks at the painting and he's like, how do you do this? <laughs> how do you do... Like, and, yeah, okay, so, like... Uh, you ever go on a hard rock and roll trip? You know, posters and stuff? Yeah. What the fuck does that even mean? Well, he's asking if you make, like... I... What, can, can, he, do you do merch? Is that yeah, that's basically yeah. what I thought, because... Uh, Tony Coca-Cola and the Roosters, they seem to be professional, unprofessionally professional, punk like band. Unconventional conventionists. Unconventional yeah, they're doing a lot of shows. They're doing yeah. a lot of shows, and, and, and Tony definitely has money. I mean, when they're just like, look, the, the rent to this place is $500, he's just like, you know, here, give, give, the, man, give the man his $500. Like, he doesn't... He is like he's completely indifferent yeah, to how much like it costs. Yeah, it's very like a Warhol factory. Oh, it's oh. like some version of Warhol factory going oh, on. There. Oh, hell yeah. yeah! And then when when Reno says, "Look, if you want me to paint your portrait, that's five hundred dollars, another five hundred dollars sum." Um, he's just like four twenty. Four twenty. It's not a fucking stoner joke at all. Yeah, and then he's like, "All right, all right, five hundred. You know, like it's not even really. He's not even really trying to haggle." He doesn't care. No, he's got money. Yeah, he's got yeah. money. Um, and you know, he's got money to do whatever he kind of wants with it, within reason, I guess. But you know, he's a mildly successful punk star. Punk well, he's rocker. just as artsy as Reno is, except he's successful. Yeah, way more successful than Reno. Yeah. And once this happens, uh, it kind of things kind of seem like they might be looking up. Kinda like he does have other releases. Things are still frustrating to him. But you'd think, you know, he can go to these shows. Like, his girls have become tight with his punk band. He's now sort of friends with Tony Coca-Cola, I guess. Yeah. Um, They're going to more shows, so he has that sort of release. He has ample access to food, thanks to his girlfriend. Um, mm -hmm. And he could probably do uh, booze and drugs or whatever, because it's definitely around. Yeah. So things are kind of looking up, I guess, if mm -hmm. he's going to make this 500 bucks from Tony Coca-Cola. We've said Tony Coca-Cola 800 fucking times. I like his name. I kind of do, too. <laughs> Reluctantly. But what ends up happening is, well, Dalton, his art dealer, shows up to see the finished product. After all this tension... It's finally finished. After all these shows and, and all the arguments and... And just like freak out after freak out, finally his his masterpiece is done. Now it's weird because we don't really see him working on it for a chunk of the movie. He's working on Tony's painting, which is actually very good. It's very good. Yeah, it actually kind of makes Tony look not insane. Yeah, 
Which is hard to do. Because he didn't even hold still for the whole painting of the portrait. No, he was rambling incoherent bullshit, and then he was playing his guitar with no shirt while wearing a necktie. And then making out with Pamela for the last third. Making out with Pamela and getting her all naked in, in... Reno's living room while he's just painting on the he's just painting the portrait. Anyways, the buffalo painting is done. Dalton comes in and look, man, would I want a painting of a buffalo in my home? No. But would I go on a 5-minute tirade about how much you hate it and how Reno is finished and this is garbage it's worthless useless like just word after word of negativity and i i was like wow. the worst thing that could happen to an artist has happened to you you're a technician which yeah. is then more insults on top of that yeah but it's very artsy fartsy insults like you're a technician which basically means oh you've made a painting technically proficient it looks exactly like a buffalo and you could have traced this yeah which like, would have been another just like like, like thorn in his heart because he right? said like there's no self-expression there's no passion there's what is this he was like he he called it like egocentric and, and i was like wow like you're throwing a lot of words out and saying like he can't he can't sell this he can't sell it it's brutal it's beyond brutal like <laughs> eviscerated yeah he and and reno just sort of sits there quietly carol sits there quietly while he just fucking, and this is the point in the movie that you pointed out, and then I was like, wow, I didn't notice, but how just high-strung everybody is. Yeah, everyone like, freaks out. Like, huge. Like, nobody, he can't just be like, no, this isn't really what I'm looking for. Like, like there's, <laughs> it's not constructive at all. You sound more like an art dealer than this guy does. Yeah, he, he basically just says, you fail at self-expression, kill yourself. Like, yeah, that's basically all he said. Yeah. Like, Goodbye. And then, like he just screams, rants, and raves and walks out the door. Yeah. I was like, that's not... Throwing a phone out of a window is not normal behavior. Flipping out on your girlfriend because she asks if your painting is done is not normal behavior. Playing a guitar with a necktie on and making out with some chick in a guy's living while room. While someone's trying to paint you. While someone's trying to paint you is not normal behavior. Tony Coca-Cola's one female friend freaks out about the other girl's for like five fucking minutes. Oh yeah, Everyone freaks just out. freaks out. I don't like you hanging out with them. I don't like you being around here. Well, you stay the fuck or I'm going to fucking like make your life difficult. It's just like, ew, what's this about? And then, and then the artist, this guy who's like successful, what, why are you getting this angry? Yeah. Like, what do you, what the fuck do you have to lose? Except for the fact that like, yeah, it seems to imply that he's lent R- Reno a couple of bucks here and there, like a few hundred dollars here and there. Yeah, he turned him down for the forward on his rent, but he has, yeah, a couple hundred bucks. He's definitely A couple hundred him. bucks for a few odds and ends. And, and I guess maybe he's upset because he's like, well, I'm not going to recoup that money on this. And you promised me this was going to be your great masterpiece. So, it, like, I don't know. Like, is that why he's mad? It's weird because I think his reaction is fucking crazy. Crazier still is that the next time you see Dalton, he's coming to Reno's apartment with, like, a bottle of wine. Because apologizing after freaking out is what you do, I think. You either paint them a little picture with a sun that says, I'm sorry, or yeah. you bring them some wine. Well, let me tell you something. If anybody unloaded a rant on me like that, after I was just like, hey guys, look, I made a thing. I could <laughs> Someone... never <laughs> I could never talk to that person again. I've I like to think I have a pretty thick skin. But 
if you were to just unload that horse shit at me, I'd be, I'm, I'm done. You can't bring oh, me Oh, yeah, up. he really, really tore his heart out. Like, to the point where Reno, who is great at freaking out on people, we've seen this, and he's also by this... A point, murderer. A murderer, and, and has been taking out his really high aggression on the homeless in really super aggressive, bloody ways. Oh, yeah. Um, He flatlines. He yeah, just goes do right catatonic. And ironically, Carol is the one that just sort of calmly gets up, doesn't say anything, and then has her first true meltdown where she smashes something. and because, She's screaming down the hallway. Like, get back here, and then screams at Reno, do something. Do, like, why aren't you doing something? You know, you're just sitting there not doing anything. And, like, Carol at this point has, like, there's been a lot of indications that she's getting fed up with the idea that she's basically paying for this guy. Yeah. And, and like and he's not grateful because he ha- in one of his patented meltdowns, he he berates her for paying everything. So, what do you think I should like thank you for that? You want me to get down on my knees, knees and, and kiss your ki- feet? Kiss your feet? Yeah, man, because she's literally paying your rent for you yeah. and buying you food and everything that you have right now is because this woman is paying for it. Now, didn't the I'm sorry thing come after the pizza thing, which is so quintessentially New York, right? They, yeah. They get this massive pizza. Get this massive pizza. Splitting it. Pamela is daintily eating like one or two bites because that's all the goldfish needs to eat. Yeah, she's very low. Like she says, very low impact girlfriend. Yeah. Um, uh, Carol is eating with like a knife and fork, like a, a slice of pizza with a knife and fork. That drives me crazy, by the way. I was, think I, I'm neither here nor there with you know, I've and, used a knife and fork on some And And in what I'm sure is your favorite part is Ugh. Reno. Reno is shoveling. <laughs> like, eat, like, first of all, he's eating pizza faster than I've ever seen anyone eat. He's eating pizza in the way that I think that the New York punk scene of 1979 ate pizza. Like fucking animal pigs. I like, hate like it. Like shove a piece of pizza in your mouth. As much as you can. Start chewing it. And While then, you're eating and it. Then, and then shove a nut, like more pizza in your mouth. You're not even, you haven't even swallowed. Like a garbage compactor. Like a, like a, like a wood chipper. You just yeah. kind of, and, and then, and then once you, he got the crust, drops the crust on the rest of the pizza. Oh, he does the whole fold it in half thing. Yeah, he does the whole thing. So he can fit the rest into the garburator that he's become. <laughs> garburator. <laughs> Fucking right. It's and then, disgusting. And, then, and, and so, you know, the two ladies, I mean, they, they got like one piece of pizza each and he crushes that pizza probably like fucking six slices while they're like two bites in yeah and she uh carol just just and, and you know you get the carol like definitely bought that pizza and the and the cokes that they were drinking and they each get one piece and he's just shoveling the lion's share into his mouth and like that kind of is a metaphor for the, his entire personality right just take 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 everything's about me and i'm just not going to pay for it i'm not paying for it and i don't care who's paying for it and whatever i'm just an art I'm an artist, man. Like, <laughs> just like that type of shit. I'd like to see him and Tony Coca-Cola could have the greatest conversation forever if Rena would just chill the fuck if out. If you stop murdering people. Well, what? like the whole, the eating pizza thing is pretty gross. It's aggravating to me more, more so I can watch all of it though. And I could like if certainly watch all the kills. And they are, they are bloody, bloody kills. Like there is quite a lot of blood in this. Oh um, my God. Geysers of it. Yeah. Pools of it. Oh yeah. I like it. Um, but I, I had a hard time with the toothbrushing. Is it Tony? Tony is definitely teeth. doing the brushing the teeth. And it's like foaming and stuff. But um, when Reno eats food, he eats a hamburger. Probably like a half a hamburger in one bite because he's got a massive mouth, right? Yeah. Um, 
And then he takes a drink of milk with the half a burger in his mouth. And, you know, milk poured all over his chin when he was doing it, too. <laughs> yeah, now, dear listeners, you can't hear this or see this, sorry. But, you know, she's cringing. You're, like, twisting in your chair because Lydia has a big problem with food grossies. Grossy food. Yuck, 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 yuck. Yucky watching people eat food and if it comes out their mouth, which is fucked because I can watch people puke all day long. Yeah. And oh, what if like that stuff falls out of their mouth and hits their feet? <laughs> That's not all bad. If they were wearing no shoes, I don't want to even talk about it. I don't even want to go if they there. Pick up, the, ta- pick up the food off the, their naked foot and eat it. <laughs> la, la, la. You Stop don't it. <laughs> <laughs> if their feet were dirty, I'd probably I, I I would probably just not be able to watch it. I'm sorry, like I just wouldn't be able to. It's like the ninth layer of hell for you. <laughs> totally <laughs> just is. Just watching totally that is. on a loop. But you know what? Stick a drill in someone's fucking forehead for like three whole minutes and have them squirm under you like you're riding some sort of demented horse. I'm fine with that. Whoa, that was whoa, awesome. They, they do that. Um, yeah. This movie has a distinction of being. A former member of the UK Video Nasties list. Mm-hmm. Um, for anyone who's not aware, the United Kingdom has had has some very strict censorship laws. So certain horror films, especially those produced uh, throughout the United States, some from Europe, it kind of really depended, but they would get banned because of scenes that were determined to be too shocking or vulgar or whatever. Yeah, corrupting of morals. Corrupting of morals. Yeah. So uh, we've actually uh, covered some former video nasties on the show already. We've done Maniac. That was a video nasties. Uh, there was another one that we've done that I that it's, it's slipping my memory right now. Famously, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Exorcist, uh, Cannibal Holocaust. These are movies uh, that have all since been taken off. Censorship laws have relaxed a little bit over the years. This is especially... Uh, a in... new board would probably... Board members would probably be moved in and they'd be re-reviewed. Yeah, and that's typically what ended up happening was if you... Re... There are movies that are still banned in the, in the UK, but those are pretty much banned because no one bothered to resubmit them. I think that there was 30, 30 or 40 video nasties on the list... And that got whittled down. And I think there's still only 10 that are still technically banned in the UK. Stuff like Cannibal Holocaust, Texas Chainsaw, they had some edits done to them. And now, oh, a Blood Feast. That's another yeah, okay. rather famous one. That, I didn't know that was. Yeah, yeah okay. Blood Feast was on cool. the video nasty list. Resubmitted with edits. And usually the edits aren't significant. Sometimes, usually less than a minute, if not less than two minutes mm-hmm. of footage just cut. I know the uh, the hook scene, the meat hook scene from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that was kind of one of the, the scenes that was, ooh, that was a no-no in uh, for that movie. And, and a lot of these laws came about, like really strict versions of the laws came out in like 1984. So anyway, that's what the video nasty list is now. The Driller Killer was on the video nasties list, but because uh, it was never resubmitted, but because it has like a weird standing with public domain, I think it no longer qualifies. Like, so it's, it's, I don't think it was ever resubmitted, but it's definitely, you can get the uncut version. Yeah, the uncut version is basically available worldwide. Yeah, you can get it on YouTube. I mean, this yeah. movie is readily available. One of the controversial scenes was when they're at, the roosters show Reno goes on 
a fucking rampage and kills five people. You were like making jokes about like, oh, you guys are going to watch a show? Awesome. Go make out in the corner. Cool. I'm, I'm going to just take a walk. I'll be right back. Yeah, I'm going to go get, buy a pack of cigarettes or something like that. No, and I'm going to go kill five vagrants. Like, and, and what's crazy is like he kills somebody in a subway. Nobody's around. Kills two people, three people right on the street. Like right on the street. And nothing. This movie's kills. On the one hand, some are pretty graphic. On the other hand... They don't show you a whole lot. Except maybe the um, bus stop kill. And I really enjoy that one the most. It doesn't go on the longest. I think the forehead, drill in the forehead is the longest. Mm-hmm. And the most graphic and really the most harrowing because the guy's in a lot of pain. And it's really sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bus stop scene is, is really cool. Because you do get sort of like that, those weird outtakes of the crazy guy annoying everybody. And mm-hmm. then everyone else seems to go away. And he comes up behind him through the gap in the glass in the back of the bus stop. And every time I see that little gap in the glass in the back of a bus stop, I think of this. And, oh, I, yeah. and, I, and I smile to myself. And, and that really comes from a place of growing up around these things, around these bus stops. And kind of looking at that and being like, you know, you could probably stab somebody through that, that little gap in the glass. And that really takes someone really looking at that. Because they could have, they could have filmed that anywhere. They yeah. really could have filmed that kill in any place. It could have been in another alleyway. What's the difference? Yeah, just killing some vagrant. Yeah, but they specifically said, no, let's do this at a bus stop. Let's do that thing that happens in New York in any city where you have people with mental problems who are homeless just sort of yelling and ranting and raving at people and then people ignore like ignoring it and it was funny because I was like wow it really makes me feel like people are the same all over because if this was happening in Ottawa that's exactly what would happen if someone is having an episode yeah. other people just pretend no that's not happening I'm not looking at you I'm not reacting and then if you get too frustrated you just walk away without really saying anything no one really tries to communicate back or try to help or anything like that people just want to ignore it and so you're doing that at the bus stop and then it's like well if he's at a bus stop ooh I bet you the drill fits it in here, well, I'm just going to kill him through that. It was a lot of little interesting layers to that that I thought could only come from the mind of someone who was filming in his own neighborhood. Yeah, you know? yeah. Spending a lot of time with that sort of um, street life around him all the time really, and thinking these things. Really using the environment, right? Yeah. Being in an alleyway and saying, well, I'm going to bolt this guy's hand to this part of the alley, this part of the alley, making kind of like a cruciform, and then I'm going to drill him up the center. Yeah, the Jesus of downtown. Exactly, just just weird stuff like that. The drill in the head is very slow. Uh, it's definitely a, a showpiece kill where you're just like, look at how I'm slowly... And even the extra uh, sound effects in the background of that one make it even a, a little bit more uncomfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's two other interesting points that happen in this movie. Um, and and we'll talk about it. The screen going to blank in two different instances. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure. You had a good take on that last bit, and we'll talk about that because I guess we'll wrap this up soon. But when he finally his r- killing rampage gets out of control to the point where Carol leaves. She doesn't know that he's killing people, but. She definitely knows that he is going to fail as an artist because the piece is apparently unsellable by Dalton. He tells she's her she's done with. She's this. done. She's yeah. she's done. She's going back to her husband. She leaves. He 
kills Dalton, who blame who he blames for that happening, clearly. Oh, entirely. And the death scene with Dalton goes to blank or red in the version that I have. Or black in the uncensored version. Yes. Same thing. It's basically Yeah. And we looked on we looked online to see if there was something we were missing. Because you're like, oh, you have the censored version. I was like, I thought I didn't, but maybe I do. And no, it just goes to blank and he gets drilled up against a door and Pamela encounters Dalton's body. And then when the door opens, you see it in all its bloody glory. I mean, he's certainly dead and he's been pinned to the door. Yeah, it's a very cool body discovery scene in a yeah, way, even though the killer's still standing it's right very there. Good. And Pamela, yeah. in Pamela, classic Pamela fashion, is almost kind of like no real reaction. She's like, whoa, what? What's hanging on the door? What's a body? No, um, she she kind of freaks out. Uh, there's, you don't really know what ends up happening to her except for Reno tells her to just come down. It's me. It's me. It's me. It's me. Calm down. And you guess like she would like that might work. Like oh oh it's you. Yeah. <laughs> What's that body doing there? What's that body? He then heads to Carol's ex husband, who she is reunited with. She goes to take a shower, like you do. <laughs> and get and her husband is just instantly drilled through the back. I don't know. Like again, how did he get there? Like they must live nearby. I mean, well, she was getting on the like when she was running, well, running away when she was storming off out of his life. She went down to a subway tunnel, so it's got to be some distance. And it definitely seems like it's in a nicer area oh, because it probably. seems like her husband has a little bit more money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he gets taken out. And then comes this very interesting scene where I guess he's lying un- on the bed under the covers. And Carol comes to bed. And the screen goes black, or red in our case. And you're treated to some dialogue where Carol is talking to him about, Oh, did you fall asleep already? Well, come here. You're not moving. You're not talking. What's the matter? You know? Yeah. And sort of very quiet, very intimate. There's no visual. There is no visual whatsoever. There's no other audio other than her. Very, very soft-spoken. Mm-hmm. Finally, somebody's not freaking out yeah. in this film. Definitely the same moment that you would have with anybody, any significant other, when the lights are off and you're both in bed together and you, one of you goes to the bathroom or, or whatever and you come back and, oh, the other person's asleep. And you don't really want to talk in a normal indoor speaking voice, but you... Definitely don't want them to be asleep because she kind of wants to be intimate or something like that. And you're like, oh, come on, like, come here, come here, wake up. And that kind of stuff. And then credits. So you don't really know what happens. You'd like to think, um, Wes said that I'd probably like it because it's so ambiguous. But I honestly do think he just kills her. I would assume so, yes. I don't think they talk it out. No, because what's to talk about? Even if it's dark and she just can't really see who it is, I mean... First of all, her ex-husband had a beard, and he's clean-shaven. <laughs> yeah. Clean-shaven. Clean, And since unquote. Pamela, he's gone non-speaking. He had, didn't have a word to say mm-hmm. from the time he consoled Pamela, and then they cut the scene to Stefan's house. Yeah. He hasn't had a word to say. No. So I don't think that Reno has anything more to say. He's no. got his port-a-pack and his drill, and I think that's it. Which is weird that nobody noticed he was carrying the port-a-pack around to these punk shows, but whatever. Whatever. Nah, you know. 
He's an edgy Artur. Yeah, maybe people just do carry around big belts full of batteries all the time. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's a thing. I don't know. But yeah, I, I, I do believe that it's not as ambiguous as, we, as it would seem. It ends with this quiet intimacy, which is finally what he kind of needed all along. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's just the living end. And mm. she definitely gets it. I think so, too. I don't think that there's much room for interpretation. I think that best case scenario, there's a massive argument. She's horrified and she escapes. Worst case scenario, that exact same thing happens and she doesn't escape. I like to envision just, you know, after the credits roll, and it's still black. All of a sudden you hear sort of like the, the flesh on flesh of him clapping his hand over her mouth and just drills right into her temple. I, I'm always expecting to just hear the drill. Like yeah. if if there was nothing, you just, do expect to hear something, just like, don't you? And like, all no. the audio that you get, you're really fed a lot of information through this film, through the audio. Mm-hmm. You 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 need it and you want it by that mm-hmm. point. You're really expecting. Yeah, well, especially since like the the punk music plays such a huge part in this. And there's also scenes with like classical music. Especially we didn't really mention that like he's got these weird visions, freak out internal freak out moments. That he seems to be blaming on Carol, almost like she's in his mind or something. Like it's weird, but and in those moments they slow it down and they play like classical music. And I do love that one that's uh, filmed and reversed, and mm. he's covered in blood, covered, covered in, in blood, in blood. Yeah. and uh, having a huge freak out. Uh, it's kind of it's a beautiful scene. Yeah. Again, still not quiet. None of it is as quiet as that no. final scene. It's very stripped down, very dry. Yeah. And just dialogue. Uh, no visual, no music, no nothing. Just her voice here yeah. and there, very soft. Yeah. So, like I said, uh, I mean, this guy was really doing a lot of experimental stuff. Like he he was trying a lot of things while at the same time making a horror movie where a guy is just stalking New York City and killing the homeless, uh, and then eventually finally turning on finally turning on the people that are like the objects of his frustration. Yeah. Very effective slasher that does not fit into that formula. No, not whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You spend most of the time with a killer. Uh, it, 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 it's very similar in base concepts to Maniac, which came out a year after. Mm-hmm. I think Maniac benefited from having more seasoned actors, a lot more money, uh, more professionally filmed and stuff like that. But I think like this, what this movie edges out in a lot of just just being very experimental, very musically driven, very. Um... It's a it's a far more rich and relatable story too, because you've got elements of uh, patronage, you have elements of religion, you have just being an artist and trying to scrape by being a starving artist. You have things that everyone can relate to: bills and rent and stuff and loud neighbors. And if you're into the music scene, you've got sort of like that drama tension that happens uh, sometimes going to shows and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you've got a non-traditional relationship of having a girlfriend and girlfriend and boyfriend living together as a triad. Um, just a lot of like a lot, a lot more layers that almost anyone can relate to. We're in Maniac. Maybe not so much. Although, like you said, Maniac is the superior film being filmed much tighter, more linear uh, yes. screenplay, at least. Maybe not mm-hmm. as much of a relatable storyline, but it's a it's a far more linear storyline. Mm-hmm. And, of course, lighting, sound, all those things are, are done a, a little more better, but uh, uh, with a bigger budget, of course. Yeah. This is a super, like, mellow episode. Like, I feel like I'm super mellow. 
Yeah. It's and a it, super mellow movie. Like, it is It is a quiet... Like, it's for all the fucking annoying punk music in it. And they keep playing the song that makes me want to listen to Jack the Ripper over and over. Um, it is a sleepy film. And it is sort of like you point out that duality where I spent the day today and you'd come by to hang out shop and visit at the punk ottawa flea market yeah which is super cool so we were like sort of steeped in this whole like punk scene today yeah which isn't abnormal but it's like it was it was cool today to spend the whole day around the the larger portion of the punk scene today yeah and then come and listen to this uh punk horror yeah for all of the noise it's super chill <laughs> Yeah, it's super chill. And on that chilly note, I'm Wes Knight. I don't know. I don't feel like any. I feel like there's something more there. You know what I mean? No. Maybe what I need is for you to freak out so that I can finally like express the artist in me. I, I, <laughs> I'd like to see them redo this. This was one thing that we had um, talked about a little, and it's talked about on the Wikipedia, you pointed out, Um that there was somebody looking to remake it. I would love to see the original filmmaker remake this. Maybe not act in it so much anymore because he's aged himself out of his own role. But he had the right vision, you know. He knows what he's doing behind the camera. If you see his uh, latest or even his, like, following films, the next four or five films afterward, he definitely progressed yeah, to be a really, movie. really good filmmaker. I really, really enjoy it, specifically King of New York. So I'd love to see him revisit this entirely, just really... Like, it's sort of the way The Maniac was redone. And he's only, uh, like, 64. He shares a birthday with me. I is, That's precious. I think that's precious. Not that I'm 64 years old. No, not at all. But, but yeah. But, yeah, he was born on July 19th. So, yay. Yeah, I think that's kind of cool. And, I like, Freaky I really buddies. think he'd do a good job. We have so many more cool power tools nowadays, too. You <laughs> could contemporize this film. Easy peasy. Because now you got those little tiny battery packs to just slam into the base of these things. You don't have to carry a weird belt around. You could definitely keep a Makita power drill hidden in your trench coat or whatever. And are, there's so many more cool bus areas. Maybe a little more populated. There's cameras on everything, so someone will catch you. So maybe it could be found footage. I don't know. <laughs> I'd love to see this redone with, like, way cooler, more power tools. <laughs> well, I would. Yeah, like a huge Sawzall or something. Makita, you could probably get Makita to sponsor it. <laughs> I think that'd be fun. And they come in better colors, too, because that was an ugly drill. What we need is a sexy drill. <laughs> What's a sexy drill? Any drill. A new drill. That's what I need is a new drill. And on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air. We are the monsters that live under your bed. The ones all the grown-ups eventually forget we take their kids to a land of make-believe but they never come home because that's what we like to eat we like to eat children whoa we like to eat children whoa whoa we like to eat children whoa we like to eat children whoa whoa that's what we like to eat All the grown-ups cry 
that they lost They ran away to a land that time forgot Those little morsels make a tasty treat And now they're long gone singing this song Cause that's what we like to eat We like to eat children Whoa, we like to eat